Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we will be talking about Iran and whether there will or can be a return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or Iran Nuclear Deal, and our guest will be Ali Vais, Iran Project Director at the International Crisis Group. Ali previously served as Senior Political Affairs Officer at the United Nations Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, and as Iran Project Director at the Federation of American Scientists. Ali is known as one of the top experts on Iran and on the Iran nuclear deal, and he is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Wall School of Foreign Service and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. The Iran nuclear talks reportedly will resume soon, but many questions remain about whether it will be possible to return to the deal which the Trump administration withdrew from in 2018, three years ago. The Biden administration, when it came into office in January, gave priority to restarting the nuclear talks with Iran, if indirectly. While the U.S. and Iran have not been speaking to each other face-to-face, the other signatories to the JCPOA, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, and China, the EU, they have all been talking to Iran and back-channeling to the U.S., and a deal was reportedly close back in June. But those talks shut down after Ibrahim Raisi was elected president of Iran, and Raisi took office on August 3rd. Raisi is more conservative and hard-line than his predecessor, Hassan Rouhani, and Raisi's constituency in the parliament is less interested in diplomacy with the West. Meanwhile, Iran has expanded its production of highly enriched uranium beyond the constraints in the 2015 nuclear agreement. Highly enriched uranium is necessary for the production of a nuclear weapon, and Iran's development of that material at these levels is getting close to weapons-grade capability. Many are skeptical of Iranian intentions, especially Iran's intentions under Raisi. And those skeptics wonder if Iran has passed a point of no return and whether a deal is even possible anymore. Among those skeptics are the leaders of Israel who have been pressing their case with the Biden administration for a plan B to deal with Iran if nuclear talks don't succeed. We will discuss all of this, what to expect with Iran and whether a new nuclear agreement is possible. And if not, what comes next? with our guest today, Ali Bays, and that conversation begins now. Ali, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. Great to be with you. Let's get into it. The Biden administration came into office in January this year and made reconstructing the Iran nuclear deal a top priority. President Biden appointed Your boss, International Crisis Group President Rob Malley, is envoy, and the administration made a hard run to close the deal before Ibrahim Raisi assumed the presidency in August. So much for that. Iran has said it will resume the nuclear talk soon, but the mood music so far is less than encouraging. 
where do the talks stand? When do you expect them to begin? Will they pick up where they left off in June? And what do you expect is an outcome with the new Iranian president in power? Look, the talks are in suspended animation right now. Um, and uh, the reason is that they were at an impasse uh, when they broke up uh, uh, after the sixth round of talks uh, in June of this year. Uh, and by that point, although they had made progress on a, a joint draft, which is basically a pathway for returning to full compliance with the JCPOA by the U.S. and Iran, uh, there were still some serious differences that remained. Um, and uh, the expectation was that the capitals would have to make a decision. Uh, and uh, Tehran at that point made a decision that the deal was not in their interest. Um, and there are several reasons for this. Number one is the fact that uh, Iran was unhappy with sanctions relief. Uh, out of about 1,600 sanctions that the Trump administration imposed and reimposed, the Biden administration uh, was seeking to keep about uh, a third of them in place that it believed was not, uh, these sanctions are not uh, inconsistent with the JCPOA. Um, Iranians, uh, in addition to this, are worried that, uh, you know, even the sanctions relief that the U.S. is putting on the table is unsustainable in the sense that Democrats might lose control over Congress in a year uh, and over the White House in three years, and we will be back to a situation that either Congress can undermine uh, the economic uh, dividends that, that the deal has promised to them, or that uh, the next president can once again renege, uh, renege on, on an agreement. And the problem with this in, on, in the Iranian mindset is that uh, they believe temporary sanctions relief is actually detrimental to their economy because this is now an economy that has adjusted to sanctions and is actually now uh, much more stable and growing. Uh, in this first quarter of this year, the economy grew by 6%. Uh, and, uh, and that kind of uncertainty that comes with uh, unsustainable sanctions relief is something that they believe uh, creates uh, more doubts in the market uh, and undermines the kind of resilience that they have tried to build through uh, their economy of resistance. Uh, there's also obviously vested interest uh, in sanctions. Uh, and so that also plays into uh, the internal debate in Tehran. Um, and, you know, at the same time, the Biden administration was asking the Iranians, uh, uh, you know, having refused to provide them with full sanctions relief or guarantees that sanctions relief will be sustainable, uh, was asking them to uh, commit to a follow-on negotiation uh, to get what uh, uh, President uh, Biden has called a longer and stronger nuclear deal. Um, uh, and that to the Iranians sounded like a trap, that if uh, they make such commitments and there is no such uh, follow-on agreement uh, in a year or so, that would be the pretext that would be used by the U.S. to once again reimpose the sanctions. And so these issues were unresolved when, when, when uh, talks, uh, uh, when, when the negotiators returned home in June. Uh, and the new Iranian administration was uh, reluctant to come back to the table um, uh, because it didn't believe that the U.S. was going to change its position on any of these. Uh, and it believed that time was on its side. And with the exponential growth of the nuclear program, uh, the, the, uh, you know, eventually uh, they would have more leverage and the U.S. would be forced to make those concessions. I think this is a miscalculation 
But this is basically where we are right now. And uh, my expectation is that talks will resume in November. Uh, they will probably be uh, very slow uh, because uh, the, the incoming chief uh, negotiator of the, uh, on the Iranian side, uh, Ali Baghari, uh, is a former nuclear negotiator himself under uh, hardline president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Uh, and his thought is very different. Uh, and I expect that initial rounds will be filled with uh, a list of grievances and uh, uh, the reasons that uh, Iranians are the aggrieved party here and the onus is on the US to uh, compensate the Iranians for the damages that Trump administration's maximum pressure has inflicted on them. Um, and, and then eventually after a few rounds, I think we would get into a deadlock because I just don't see uh, the Iranian position uh, being uh, more flexible. In fact, they will try to drive a harder bargain. And the reality is that the Biden administration was already pretty close to its bottom line in the sixth round of talks in Vienna. Uh, and so uh, it's just hard to imagine that there is a way forward here. Let's talk a little more about Iran's economy and the sanctions. You make um, a critical point that there are vested interests in Iran in the sanctions. And you also point out the impressive resilience of the Iranian people and its economy under sanctions and under COVID in achieving growth during a very difficult time, including low oil prices over the last year. But the long-term trajectory for Iran's economy requires investment that it seems it will that can only come uh, with the lifting of sanctions. And even looking east or trying to develop relationships and networks with Russia and China, Central Asia and other countries, still a lot of those deals have to go through the international banking and financial system. And the United States, as long as the sanctions are in place, has that bottled up. So is there that awareness in Iran that yes, Iran's economic performance has been resilient, but the prospects for long-term growth, and there's a political aspect to that too. I mean, people will expect economic gains uh, over time from this administration or any administration in Iran. That's a very good question. Uh, and look, my sense is that there's a debate uh, about this in Iran. Uh, there are some uh, true and true believers in the economy of resistance who do believe uh, that you know this is the first time you have a government in Iran uh, who really subscribes to the doctrine put forward by uh, Ayatollah Khamenei that Iran's economy should become uh, resilient uh, towards external shocks, the most important among them economic coercion by the US and the West. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea is on areas that the Supreme Leader uh, has uh, basically um, uh, let's let's say this again. Um, you know, this comes from uh, the idea that uh, um, whatever the supreme leader himself has managed over the past few decades, like the military, for instance, Iran, despite all odds and despite sanctions and arms embargo, has done impressively well. Uh, its uh, ballistic missile program uh, went from nothing to one of the most sophisticated arsenals. Uh, in the Middle East, a real reliable uh, deterrent for Iran and a threat to U.S. forces and U.S. allies in the region. Um, same with the network of influence that Iran has been able to build uh, around the region uh, through partners and proxies. Uh, 
uh, and uh, and areas that the supreme leader subcontracted to the government, like the economy, that's where uh, failures have occurred. And now for the first time, the Supreme Leader has his own government in the form of the Raisi administration. Uh, and so there is true belief, uh, belief in the fact that, uh, you know, economy of resistance this time is going to work because government will no longer just pay lip service to the Supreme Leader's idea of economy of resistance, but actually is going to implement it. And there are, in their views, uh, fixes uh, to Iran's economy. I mean, if you compare Iran's current uh, oil export uh, status, which is about a million barrels uh, to, to China, uh, and uh, you know about 4 million barrels of uh, internal consumption, to um, prior to the revolution, which was the exact opposite, uh, Iran was exporting uh, four times more to the outside world that it was consuming internally, and uh, realized that Iranians can potentially uh, if uh, do this in a targeted way, make much more money of the oil that they sell domestically, close uh, taxation loops. Um, and now, because obviously you have the deep state running the state, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe you would have access to resources that the previous governments were deprived of. Uh, Rouhani administration tried really hard to get some of these religious and revolutionary foundations taxed. Uh, you know, they count about of uh, 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 a quarter of the Iranian economy, and he failed. But the Raisi administration stands a much better chance of getting that through. The Supreme Leader is going to be much more lenient to allow this government uh, to tap into the country's uh, strategic reserves. Um, and so all in all, um, you know, the, the, the viewpoint of these true believers of uh, economy of resistance uh, is that the, the situation uh, is uh, is sustainable and uh, Iran is actually able to to um, uh, become a much stronger economy as a result of turning this threat of sanctions into an opportunity. There is also the view uh, of some and uh, my recent conversations uh, with Iranian officials indicate that uh, President Raisi himself uh, might fit uh, into into this camp. Uh, is the view that, yes, Iran can survive, uh, can muddle through in the next few years, but it cannot thrive. And if it cannot thrive uh, in the medium term, it would not be able to survive because it would not be able to meet uh, the demands of the society. If it's not able to address uh, the uh, you know structural problem of an unemployment, for instance, uh, this is going to become a social threat uh, to the system. Um, and, and so those are people who uh, are not in a rush to get a deal next month or in the next six months or maybe even longer, but they want eventually to have sanctions lifted in a sustainable way so that um, you know, they, they can use sanctions relief as a catalyzer of uh, uh, creating uh, the economy of resistance that the Supreme Leader has in mind. And I think it's in that space between uh, those who uh, really uh, do not uh, believe that uh, JCPOA really offers Iran the kind of sanctions relief that it needs, and those who believe that it's better than nothing, it's in that space that uh, the future of the deal would be determined in internal debates in Iran. Let me ask a related political question uh, regarding the JCPOA inside Iran. As you just explained so well about the constituency for the resistance economy among those in power. But 
wasn't the JCPOA a wildly popular agreement among the youth in Iran, among entrepreneurs, among the middle class when it was signed? I recall that when, you know, Zarif came back after the signing, there were there were parades and so forth, and the economy grew at a substantial pace. And I know it's very hard to get at public opinion in Iran, but it's, it seemed to me that many not only saw the economic opening that came from the JCPOA, but also a sense of a political opening uh, and probably pride in what was, one might say, Iran's most significant and impactful diplomatic achievement since the revolution in terms of its outreach to the world. So it does the JCP, am I correct in that? And, and if so, does the JCPOA still have a popularity among those constituencies that may not be represented in the power structure? And thinking back to this last election, low turnout, uh, blank ballots came in second, and the parliament has frankly been stacked by Khamenei, loyalists, and conservatives over the past few years. Um, yeah, that's right. Look, uh, reality is uh, what has happened is that uh, the JCPOA went from something that a lot of people, especially in the middle class, had pinned their hopes to, uh, to uh, a real testament to the fact that uh, there is no light at the end of a tunnel. And if there is a light, it's a train coming from the other direction. Uh, you know, meaning that the Iranians, because the Rouhani administration uh, uh, really oversold uh, the JCPOA, overpromised really of what sanctions relief uh, would mean and then underdelivered because they had not put their house in order and then they got the sheer bad luck of getting the Trump administration on the US side who reneged on the agreement and then re, uh, reimposed the sanctions. Uh, there is a sense in Iran that uh, basically uh, uh, not only the US is an unreliable negotiating party, uh, but, but that there is just no way out. Uh, you know, there, at some point people believe that maybe a more competent government uh, could improve the situation, even if, uh, despite all the shortcomings, uh, you know, it might be true that Iranians would have to live with social restrictions and, and other problems, uh, environmental issues, but at least there will be economic growth. Um, uh, you know, somebody would fight corruption, uh, but none of that happened. Not only uh, that didn't happen, but the situation uh, got from bad to worse, even with with the competent people back in power in the Rouhani administration. And then eventually, you know, the idea that uh, diplomacy with the West uh, can provide a way out uh, of Iran's uh, problems, that also proved to be, uh, you know, an, an empty promise. Uh, and, and so now there's no hope left. Um, and there is no, there, there appears to be no exit ramp. And you see that in the sense of political apathy that showed itself uh, in, in the recent elections of the parliament and the presidency, in addition to the fact that the system uh, also uh, capitalized uh, on, on this sense of hopelessness uh, and basically stacked the deck uh, uh, in order to get as much of a homogenized, unified uh, uh, hardliner control over all levers of power at a critical moment for the system itself, which is, uh, you know, with, with the supreme leader's succession looming large. 
So you have, uh, you know, the, the exact opposite of what the Obama administration had in mind with the JCPOA. The idea was that, you know, you would have in Iran, even despite years of sanctions of, and mismanagement, a middle class that was open-minded, pro-Western, uh, uh, you know, uh, pluralistic, and uh, basically 10 years of economic growth, even at the rate of 5%, would grow this middle class to 85%. And that is the time uh, that Iran would get to the pivotal moment of the original revolutionaries, the Jacobines of the 1979, dying out by the force of nature, and the country would be in a better place to transition to something better. Uh, now, the exact opposite has happened. In the, in the past few years, the middle class has been devastated as a result of sanctions, and the hardliners have become more powerful and have taken over the entire state. Uh, and, uh, you know, with, 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 with that, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, that, the, uh, that the country is in a place to transition to anything more uh, moderate. Iran Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdulhayan was in New York during the UN General Assembly. Uh, and he said, among other things, that the only action needed is for the U.S. to lift the sanctions imposed or reimposed since 2018. He also said that an opportunity for what he called a goodwill gesture may have been missed by the U.S. not allowing Iran access to its own money to purchase medical assistance and vaccines. Is this posturing? Is uh, Do you expect a choreography of some sort between the U.S. Uh, and Iran to try to get things going? And of course, the provision of Iran of funds to allow Iran to buy medicine and vaccines was also the subject of the flurry of diplomacy in uh, at the UN General Assembly in what 2019, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, when Macron was trying to arrange a meeting between Raisi and Trump. Is that moment passed? And do you think such gestures or choreography will be part of the mix if there is to be any traction this time around? Uh, I do believe that the moment for uh, goodwill gestures that could uh, significantly change the dynamic between Iran and the U.S. Uh, unfortunately has passed. Um, you know, I think the Biden administration in its early few weeks could have taken a step on the humanitarian front uh, that would send a positive signal to the Iranians. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that uh, the Iranians uh, were hugely disappointed by the fact that uh, Iran not only did not feature among the priorities of uh, the Biden administration's uh, early few weeks uh, as part of reversing uh, the Trump administration's legacy of, for instance, returning to the Paris climate deal or um, uh, the WHO, um, but also that there was no, uh, you know, mea culpa on, on the U.S. side, as if uh, what had happened to Iranians as a result of uh, maximum pressure, uh, you know, which in their estimate has uh, inflicted about a trillion dollars of damages uh, to their economy, uh, was done not by a different administration, uh, different U.S. administration, but by a different country. Um, and uh, and so all of that, I think, contributed to the hardening of Iranian position, which was already marked by unrealistic expectations of how the U.S. would do a complete 180 uh, on its policy towards Iran, which was unrealistic to begin with because the Iranians were simultaneously escalating and not just escalating in the nuclear realm, 
you know, before President Biden even uh, was sworn in, uh, the Iranians started enriching to 20%, um, you know, in the early weeks of uh, the uh, nuclear negotiations in Vienna, uh, they started enriching to 60%. Uh, they increased uh, the uh, attacks on U.S. Uh, diplomatic facilities and, and military forces uh, in Iraq uh, by Shia militias. Uh, you know, we saw an escalation in the war in Yemen. Uh, there were skirmishes between the Iranian Navy and the U.S. Navy. So it was hard, really, for the Iranians to expect that uh, the Biden administration would uh, uh, de-escalate and would uh, demonstrate goodwill gesture uh, while the Iranians were, were escalating on all fronts. Uh, and you know the story of Iran-U.S. relations is replete with these kind of uh, missed opportunities, uh, and uh, and I think that contributed to uh, uh, both sides, uh, you know, having uh, unrealistic expectations of one another and and demonstrating very little flexibility uh, at the table. Um, but uh, you know, uh, again, at the end of the day, uh, I I think there is still a realization uh, in both capitals. Uh, that the alternatives to uh, the nuclear deal uh, are much less attractive for both sides. Uh, you know, although the Biden administration wants a longer and stronger deal, and although the Iranians want sanctions relief, um, you know, uh, but uh, but but it, the alternative to getting uh, the JCPOA uh, back on track uh, is, uh, you know, likely as we don't need to actually hypothesize about it because we've seen this movie before. Um, you know, this would be reminiscent of the early years of the Ahmadinejad administration in which, you know, there was a race of sanctions against centrifuges. On, on the one hand, the US would impose new sanctions or double down on enforcing existing sanctions. The Europeans would snap back their own multilateral sanctions and potentially the UN sanctions. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and the Iranians would just ratchet up their nuclear program and ratchet down uh, the uh, uh, transparency and, and inspection uh, measures uh, of, of uh, uh, the, the nuclear program. Uh, and, and we would end up uh, sooner or later in a situation that uh, you know, every week there will be speculation of whether Israel or the U.S. Uh, or, or both. Uh, would strike Iran's nuclear facilities. So, um, you know, it would be a lose-lose dynamic for both sides. Um, and uh, this will happen at the time that the Biden administration wants to pivot away and focus on China and climate and, and other big priorities, um, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and it would instead have to deal with uh, a corridor of chaos that stretches from the borders of Afghanistan uh, with Iran destabilizing, further destabilizing Iraq and Syria to push the U.S. out, uh, and also uh, trying to deter Israel from conducting covert operation on Iranian uh, soil through uh, uh, putting more pressure on Israel through Syria and Lebanon and uh, Gaza and elsewhere. So it will be really, uh, you know, the Middle East will become uh, so tumultuous that it would be really difficult to imagine that the Biden administration will be able to pivot away for it, from it. And again, from, for the Iranians, it would be still living under sanctions uh, uh, for uh, the foreseeable future, in addition to uh, threats of uh, military action and probably sabotage of their nuclear facilities and uh, other infrastructure assassination of uh, their scientists. And, and so it's, it, you know, it's not a, uh, an attractive image for either side. And that's why uh, I'm still hoping that uh, they have not given up on plan A, uh, but for sure both sides have started thinking about plan B because plan A uh, looks uh, 
uh, increasingly less promising by the day. Ali, you anticipated my next question. The U.S.-Israel strategic dialogue has been primarily focused on Iran, including what you just referred to, a plan B, if there is no nuclear deal. Um, what is your take on the U.S.-Israel talks on Iran? And what is your sense of what that plan B would look like in terms of very specific moves that the U.S. and perhaps Israel and perhaps uh, other U.S. partners in the region would have to take if there is no nuclear deal? Um, so, first of all, there is much more coordination between uh, Israel and the U.S. right now uh, than was the case just a few months ago. Uh, the Bennett uh, administration and the Biden administration uh, see eye to eye on the ultimate objective, obviously, of preventing Iran to get nuclear weapons. And although they might have differences in terms of approach, they're willing uh, to resolve them behind the scenes. And, you know, they're really trying hard to avoid another public fight uh, reminiscent of the time that the uh, 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 Netanyahu administration was, was fighting uh, Washington on this issue. Um, but, you know, there are still differences in approach in the sense that uh, um, Israel believes that the current situation is sustainable. Uh, although Iran's breakout time, which is the amount of time that it takes for Iran to accumulate enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon has now shrunk from 12 months that was uh, uh, basically uh, devised in the JCPOA to uh, about one month and it's shrinking by the day. Uh, but it would take some time for Iran to weaponize uh, this material uh, whenever it decides to actually uh, break out uh, and go for nuclear weapons. Israeli estimators that this would take another year and a half to two years. And so they appear uh, not to be in a rush to restore the JCPOA. Um, the Biden administration, uh, I, I think, has a different sense of the timeline. And they do believe that in a matter of a few months, not only the non-proliferation value of the JCPOA will disappear with the kind of irreversible progress that Iran's nuclear program would make as a result of technical advancements and research and development um, and, and other uh, activities that Iran is engaged in, for instance, uh, creating uranium metal that could be used in nuclear weapons. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and that eventually with the shrinking breakout time, the risk of uh, military action would increase and, and uh, also there are problems between Iran and uh, UN uh, uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which uh, requires some sort of diplomatic action at some, some point uh, to either censure Iran or send the file to the UN Security Council uh, so it, it's not a can that could be kicked down the road for a very long time, uh, maybe a few months, but certainly not a few years uh, in, in the way that Israel considers this situation. Israelis believe that Iran is in a uh, position of weakness, that eventually if they uh, are contained under maximum pressure uh, and um, you know, undermined in other ways as well, what they have referred to as uh, death by a thousand cuts, uh, covert operations, maritime tit for tats, um, uh, you know, uh, cyber attacks, uh, that eventually the regime uh, would have to feel with uh, social unrest in ways that it would have to focus internally and would not be able to project power in the region. Uh, and in the best case scenario, it might collapse. 
the Biden administration is much more pessimistic about uh, you know what could happen in this time frame, and and they're worried about uh, a uh, a serious uh, non-proliferation crisis as well as more instability in the region, and so. Uh, they do believe that the better way of kicking the can down the road is to restore the JCPOA that would at least contain Iran's nuclear program uh, uh, for uh, another decade and uh, give more time and space to negotiate a successor agreement. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the final solution probably is that uh, the, the Biden administration's plan uh, would 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 go forward, and if it fails, then the Israeli plan would come to the fore. That's that's probably the likeliest uh, scenario because if there are there's no either the JCPOA is no longer relevant uh, or revivable, uh, uh, or uh, the you know the talks collapse entirely, uh, then we are in a situation that uh, there is no other way other than uh, Plan B that uh, Israel is in favor of. Uh, there is, again, the problem that uh, Plan C might impose itself uh, on both sides uh, because of uh, if Iran's nuclear program, for instance, uh, is expanded uh, vertically in a, in, a, in a very rapid way, and the Iranians have the ability to do that, then the question of taking military action might become uh, you know, a much more imminent uh, uh, issue to deal with. But they might also choose to escalate uh, horizontally uh, in ways that it would not provide sufficient justification for military action. Uh, but let me add this as well, that there are some in Iran who are not even afraid of this worst case scenario, because their view is uh, that uh, the only thing that poses an existential threat to the Islamic Republic is a land invasion that is just not on the cards. So anything less than that means that the regime will survive. And, you know, as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, and a limited military strike uh, by Israel or, uh, or the U.S. or both would uh, basically uh, create the rally around the flag effect. Uh, that is exactly what the Islamic Republic needs at this stage in its uh, life, political life, with a tired revolutionary uh, ideology, uh, you know, that the, a, a strike by the U.S. is the best thing that could uh, uh, revive uh, the revolutionary fervor and add to the uh, Islamic Republic's shelf life. Uh, and and that's, that's why there are serious risks here, because even the worst case scenario is something that the hardliners are not too afraid of. So if the Iran nuclear talks head toward a stalemate, why would or wouldn't Iran cross the nuclear weapons threshold? given the precarious security situation in the region, and especially with Israel and a plan B mindset, as you just described, if the nuclear talks fail. Andrew, I do believe that that option is not available to the Iranians at this point in time, in the sense that um, you know, the JCPOA increased the visibility of Iran's nuclear program uh, much more uh, than uh, uh, was the case just a few years ago. Uh, and if you, when you put that right next to the reality that Iran's nuclear program is just so deeply penetrated by Western and Israeli intelligence, which shows itself in the form of, uh, you know, the kind of attacks that the program has suffered from assassination of nuclear scientists to cyber attacks, to sabotage. Uh, that, you know, I, I do believe that whenever Iranians make the decision of uh, breaking out or sneaking out uh, in, in a clandestine facility, 
that uh, you know Iran's regional rivals or extra regional adversaries will will learn about it and will stop it before it happens. Um, I, but I do believe uh, that, and so that's one reason. And the second reason is uh, that um, uh, you know I, I, at this stage I think nuclear weapons are still not in Iran's strategic interest in the sense that if they uh, cross the Rubicon and basically weaponize. Uh, what happens is that they would change the strategic dynamic in the region so that, uh, you know, some of the inherent uh, advantages that Iran has will just disappear overnight. The advantage in terms of size and population, depth of, uh, you know, statehood, uh, all of that would disappear because in much smaller countries in the region with much better access to uh, either, uh, you know, Western nuclear uh, umbrella or even uh, off the shelf uh, nuclear weapons that they might be able to get from a place like Pakistan or elsewhere, they would have access to more sophisticated nuclear weapons. And then the question of superiority in the region becomes the number of weapons, uh, sophistication of them and whether you have second strike capabilities or not. Uh, and uh, again, Iran might lose uh, its, its uh, uh, you know, uh, dominant uh, uh, or preeminent uh, place in the regional dynamics. But I think they will make that decision uh, once they are attacked. Uh, if indeed uh, Iran is uh, uh, attacked, uh, 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 not because it's breaking out, but because uh, it's uh, 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 nearing the uh, kind of uh, latency uh, state uh, or threshold state uh, that really concerns uh, Washington uh, or Jerusalem, then that's when uh, the Iranians would, uh, I think, make a decision uh, that they would need to have the ultimate deterrent that they've already paid the price for uh, in terms of both the economic sanctions that they've suffered for more than a decade, uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the fact that they've been attacked militarily. Ali, we're just about out of time. I wanted to end on a different subject. El Monitor and others this week wrote about the urgent health condition of Bakr Namazi, one of the four Iranian-Americans still held in Iran. Uh, Siamak Namazi, who's also been held, has been a, a friend of mine for 30 years. He, his father, and his family are wonderful people. They've suffered far too long. Foreign Minister Amir Abdullahian has said that there were talks in Vienna uh, about a prisoner swap exchange, but uh, the U.S. preferred a separate track. Is that true? And in any case, help us understand how Iran views this prisoner issue, what does it want and how do you see it being resolved and can it be resolved soon? Uh, look, I think uh, part of the problem, and, and let me first say that uh, Siamak is also a very dear friend of mine and uh, you know, I'm heartbroken over what has happened to this family and, and I do hope that their ordeal will come to an end uh, as, as soon as possible. Um, but you know, the reality is that the, the talks that were uh, happening in Vienna in parallel to the nuclear negotiations uh, through the Brits, uh, who were the intermediaries in, in this case, because they also have uh, some of their own uh, dual nationals uh, uh, basically imprisoned in Iran based on similarly bogus charges. Um, uh, you know, the, the impression that 
uh, everybody had in those negotiations was that everything is agreed, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Um, and basically, the idea was that, uh, you know, it's not possible to get the JCPOA restored without uh, getting the detainees released. And it's not really possible to get the detainees released without the JCPOA. Um, but there might have been a, a case of miscommunication uh, between the two sides, also given the fact that these are, were uh, you know, uh, indirect negotiations, and that happens all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it, I, it, it's true that uh, during the past few months uh, that uh, there has been a hiatus in the nuclear negotiations, this issue of detainees has also uh, not been uh, addressed. And I do hope that actually in uh, uh, this, there is a, uh, you know, there lies an opportunity uh, for maybe taking a positive confidence building step uh, that, you know, if at least uh, we can get the detainees released on both sides, both sides in a prisoner swap, uh, then, uh, you know, this would show that there is potential for uh, progress on other areas of disagreement as well. Uh, I do hope that uh, uh, although there is uh, some linkage between the nuclear issue and, and the prisoners' uh, issues, uh, that they could be separated. And, uh, you know, the fate of uh, individuals uh, is not tied to the fate of uh, the JCPOA. Uh, because, you know, if the Iranians could uh, agree to prisoner swaps with the Trump administration, uh, I just uh, have a hard uh, time imagining why uh, a similar arrangement could not be made uh, with the Biden administration. Uh, and again, I think it's really critical for uh, changing the atmosphere and also uh, breaking the current and sense of stalemate uh, in the nuclear negotiations. Uh, again, those are difficult talks, especially because uh, they're indirect and they would have to go through intermediaries. And I don't know if the Brits would still be the intermediary or whether uh, the Swiss who have traditionally uh, played this role on behalf of the United States would, would be back in that position. Uh, but uh, it is really critical uh, to, to figure a way out because uh, too many people have suffered for too long. Probably this has been a fantastic discussion. I always learn uh, from you about Iran. You and your colleagues at the International Crisis Group do outstanding work. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. You're too kind. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great to be with you. We will return after this break. Hello. I'm Gilles Kepel, professor at Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East 
will be a fantastic addition to Almonitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amberin Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe to all three Almonitor podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thanks to our guest, Ali Bez of the International Crisis Group, our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roslin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all of our El Monitor podcasts, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East, hosted by Amber and Zaman and me. You can sign up for all of these podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.